Hey everyone, this is Glenn Greenwald. Welcome to a new episode of the Glenn Greenwald podcast here on Colin. Um, as probably most of you know by now, one of the things that makes Colin so great is the interactivity that it enables. There is a queue that all of you can put yourself in by indicating that you have a question or a comment or some kind of critique that will enable us to have some interaction. I'm going to just try and speak for a limited amount of time, leave as many questions, time, as much time for questions and, and other discussion as possible. So if you have questions, if you have comments, go ahead and indicate that by using the raised hand function and you will automatically be put into the queue and I will then take questions uh, in the sequence in which everybody is there. So as uh, the title of the room indicates, I wanted to spend some time talking about both the discourse surrounding COVID as well as what seems to be the policies that are resulting from that discourse. Because it seems to me that the COVID framework that we're using, which has never really been a model of high cogency or, or rationality, is deteriorating rapidly in terms of its ability to be understood just from a perspective of what are the first principles driving it, what are the basic assumptions on which it's premised. It's starting to seem even more arbitrary and haphazard and manipulated than it has at any time since the pandemic began. And the fact that we're almost now two years into the pandemic with a vaccine that we are all required to affirm is safe and effective against serious illness, let alone death for those who take it. And that's something I happen to believe um, is really extraordinary that even in a post-vaccine vaccinated world, it seems like the restrictions that are being demanded, the disruptions to our normal life are intensifying rapidly in a way that makes less and less sense to me. As we go on, and it seems like not only is there no end in sight, like almost we have this kind of permanent state of affairs now, but it, it's worse than that. It seems like things are getting more repressive, both in terms of our ability to question decrees and policies, but also in terms of our ability to openly debate what is being done. So let me just highlight for you a few of the the few a few of the contradictions or almost calling them a contradiction is seemingly giving it too much credit because it implies there's some logical framework that you can analyze. Like I said, it all seems very just arbitrary. Like what gets said from one day to the next seems to have no relationship to what preceded it or what comes after. I actually think the original sin for when we went from what seemed like a good faith effort to talk about this pandemic and this novel, novel uh, virus in a responsible, rational way. When we went from that good faith effort, albeit imperfect, but still seemingly well-intentioned, to something politicized and detached from anything that felt like science. The original sin for me was in June of 2020 for three months or four months from the start of the pandemic, which you can more or less place as the end of February, beginning of March of 2020, we heard this consistent message aggressively and relentlessly indoctrinated into our heads, which was you cannot leave your home for any reason. Leaving your home is sociopathic. It's irresponsible. 
people who leave their homes are being uh, reckless. They're risking the lives of your grandparents, people who left their homes to take their kids out to get fresh air, even to deserted beaches, were shamed by TV cameras. You probably remember this ridiculous, arrogant douchebag who was a lawyer in Florida who would dress up as the Grim Reaper and go to shame families who were going to deserted outdoor beaches and CNN and other news outlets made him into this celebrity, into this star, as though he had been doing something noble and, and benevolent. And obviously the premise of what he was doing was that it was just inherently irresponsible in the beginning parts of the pandemic to leave your house for any reason. I'm not sure why it was okay for him to leave his house to go and shame other people for leaving theirs. That was never explained. But that was the the messaging that was extremely consistent was that except for essential workers, there's no reason for you to leave your home. You should stay at home under all circumstances. And then suddenly in June of 2020, with the anger that erupted over the killing of George Floyd by the Minneapolis Police Department and the months-long protest movement that erupted in almost every city, not just in the United States, but around the world, including countries that were suffering even more from COVID than the United States was, all of a sudden we went from there's no reason ever to leave your house, it's irresponsible ethically and morally to step outside, to venerating these protests where these people were densely packed one on top of the other, marching and chanting and screaming and doing all the things that we were told was going to ensure transmission of the disease in a way that was irresponsible. And obviously something needed to be said about why it is that the consensus emerged that this was a protest movement we were all required to cheer when four months prior, all we had heard was that you should never leave your house. And that was when we suddenly started hearing for the first time that no, actually it's okay to leave your house as long as you stay outdoors, because as long as you're outdoors, it's very difficult to transmit the virus. And especially if you're using a mask, then it makes it almost impossible. So there's no problem whatsoever. We were told and having people go out onto the streets one on top of the other for this protest. People were petrified of appearing in any way to be contrary to or against the the Black Lives Matter protest. And so public health officials did a 180 overnight about their public health messaging. Where suddenly, for the first time, we were hearing it's completely safe to go outside as long as you're wearing a mask. So the protesters who were on the street, many of whom weren't wearing a mask, most of whom were, We're doing nothing wrong. They ought to be applauded. And there was even an effort, and probably some of you remember this, on the part of some public health officials to create a brand new justification that actually COVID wasn't the most serious public health crisis we faced. They started saying the most serious public health crisis we faced was racism, not COVID. So the entire world shut down in a way that was completely unprecedented, at least in our lifetimes, because of what we were told was this never before seen threat to the public health, which is COVID. And then overnight, we started hearing, oh, no, actually, COVID's not even the most serious threat to our public health. That's racism. It's racism that kills way more people than COVID. 
So if you're actually worried about the public health, you're not going to stay at home. You're actually going to go and participate in these protests. You know, I think that was when it really started becoming clear that public health officials, public policy officials, people who are purporting to have specialized knowledge and were being very scientific in their pronouncements, were starting to see the opportunity to politicize their messaging. It really did shift power away from people who had it previously into the hands of this entire new group of, of, of science bureaucrats, of public health officials, anyone who had a PhD after their name in epidemiology or virology suddenly became treated like this oracle of truth. And whatever they said, we all had to kind of defer to, because if we didn't, that meant that we weren't being very scientific. And that was actually something I was willing to do. I think, you know, when a novel coronavirus appears, it is something that is concerning. Obviously, it starts to kill a lot of people. You don't really have an understanding of what it is. You naturally turn to the people who have been studying epidemiology and virology. That makes a lot of sense to do, but you're only willing to do that if they demonstrate to you that they merit your trust. And they do that by ensuring that they're actually treating this like a scientific question. And the minute it became treated like a political question, where this entirely new framework got invented overnight to justify the Black Lives Matter protest movement, you know, people were saying, I was barred a month ago from attending the burial of my mother and my father. I couldn't even go to see them buried because we weren't allowed to leave our houses. And yet now suddenly, you know, that was going to be a small funeral outdoors in a cemetery with eight people, you know, just my mother's closest relatives. Instead, she had to get buried with nobody there. I couldn't even say goodbye to her. And now these same people who were telling me that I couldn't go to my mother's burial or funeral are applauding tens of thousands of people packed onto a street, one on top of the other, because they happen to like the political messaging. That was for me the catalyst for what began to unravel the idea that we could trust this public health infrastructure in order to guide us in a way that was apolitical and genuinely designed to be about the science. And obviously there's been, you know, countless different events that have fortified the erosion and accelerated the erosion of that trust. I don't need to enumerate them all. And I don't think it's really worthwhile. I've talked about a lot of them before, obviously the conflicting messaging over things like masks, over whether or not you were even allowed to question, whether it came from a lab as opposed to uh, being a zoonotic virus that made a natural leap from other animal species. All of these things have been well-reviewed and over time now they've eroded trust. But I think this is really still worth uh, reviewing and thinking about because two years into the pandemic, I feel like we're further away from a return to normalcy than ever. Even though we have a vaccine that the consensus of scientists say is safe and effective and preventing people from getting seriously ill or dying. And everybody who wants that vaccine can get it. It's universally available in the United States, at least in Western countries. And yet there's, it still seems as though we're further away from normal than ever. Universities still are closing at the first sign of a COVID case, even though the population in these universities are of the age 20 to 21 to 22, where almost nobody is dying. Almost nobody is dying, especially in places where 
vaccines are required, boosters are required, and then some 21-year-old who has three shots is told they can't go to college because five cases on a campus of 15,000 people were detected. They're also talking about reclosing schools in light of the Omicron variant, making kids go and learn remotely again. It seems so radically out of proportion to the threat currently imposed by the COVID pandemic that it is very difficult to even understand what the rationale underlying this is. You know, I I try and, in general, pride myself on my ability to understand the rationale of people who have different views than I have. In part because one of the most effective ways that you can undermine or demonstrate the invalidity of another person's views is if if you're able to ascertain the principles on which their argument is based so that you can then deconstruct it and demonstrate its invalidity. In, in, in the case of COVID, I'm pretty much at the point where I'm at a complete loss to understand what the arguments even are for people who seem to want a permanent state of maximalist COVID protection. So let me just give you a couple examples of what I mean. I still don't understand. I genuinely do not understand why it is that if I'm vaccinated, as I am, I should regard unvaccinated people as a threat to me. That is the premise of most of the public health messaging around vaccinations, that people who are unvaccinated should lose their jobs, should lose access to public spaces, should not be permitted to live a normal life because they're being reckless and irresponsible, not to themselves, which I suppose it's conceded they have the right to do, but they're being reckless and irresponsible to the society at large because they're endangering other people. So I I think about what I'm supposed to believe about the fact that I'm vaccinated, which is that it serves as protection against serious illness or death. And then I genuinely don't understand why I should look at somebody who's unvaccinated as a threat to me, because even if I do end up getting COVID, I'm supposed to be protected from serious illness or death. But it goes so much beyond that. Today, for example, the news was reported that Elizabeth Warren tested positive for COVID-19. She was quick to point out that she had been double vaccinated and now has received a booster. So she's been vaccinated three times. And yet she nonetheless got what she called a breakthrough virus as though, or a breakthrough infection, as though it's kind of intended to imply that it's rare. Actually, it's not rare at all, especially with the Omicron virus. But in general, over the last several months, it's been obvious that they way oversold the efficacy of the vaccine in terms of how much protection it would give us from actually being infected. I think it has demonstrated, and this is my view, I think everyone should be able to decide for themselves. I think it has demonstrated efficacy in helping to avoid serious illness or death. It's seemed very, very clear to me on that. But the fact that so many people who are vaccinated are still getting infected and therefore passing it to other people means I even understand the less why I'm supposed to regard 
unvaccinated people as a danger to me when vaccinated people can just as easily or maybe not just as easily, maybe a little bit more rarely, but nonetheless, with great frequency, contract and pass the virus to me. If I were to get on a plane right now, which I've done probably eight times in the past three months, and I let's just assume I was going to be anxious about whether the person sitting next to me was going to pass COVID to me or not. I'm actually not anxious about that because I'm vaccinated and I believe the vaccines protect me from serious illness or death. I don't think it's 100% guaranteed, just like I know the plane might crash that I boarded, but I boarded the plane because I feel like the risk is low and makes it worth it to risk that instead of having to go there some other way or canceling. I feel like the risk is low, even though I know that it's real. I believe that the vaccine protects me against the person next to me. But if I were to be anxious about whether this person next to me is going to make me ill, is going to infect me with COVID, what I would want to know about this person next to me is not whether they're vaccinated. Why would I care about that? If they showed me, hey, look, I want you to know you seem a little anxious not about the flying, but about COVID. I want you to know I've been vaccinated five times. Here's my proof of I just keep getting boosted over and over. Why would that alleviate my anxiety, given that I know that that person could be Elizabeth Warren, somebody who's been vaccinated and boosted and yet could still get the virus and pass it to me? That wouldn't give me comfort. That wouldn't alleviate my anxiety. I would probably have a lot of anxiety if I learned that I was sitting next to Elizabeth Warren for other reasons, but it wouldn't help me that she was vaccinated. She just proved that you can get the vac- you can get the, the virus and pass it to other people, even when you're vaccinated and boosted. What I would want to know if I were actually anxious, the information, the only information that would actually be helpful to me would be if the person got a COVID test right before boarding the flight and were able to show me that they were negative. That's the only way, that's the only helpful bit of information. Not whether they're vaccinated, but whether or not they have, they have the, the virus. Because even if they're vaccinated, they can still pass it to you. So I, I genuinely don't understand. I, I, when I say I don't understand, I'm not using that as a rhetorical device to say that this argument is unpersuasive. I mean, I genuinely don't understand. And I've asked many, many people who, who, who argue this, what their rationale is, and I still can't ascertain it. Why I'm supposed to view unvaccinated people, people who choose to be unvaccinated, as such a danger to me that I want them to lose their job or otherwise be punished because they reach a different conclusion about vaccines than I've reached. You probably remember the CDC, uh, after the vaccines were readily available, switched their guidelines and said that from now on, if you're vaccinated, you no longer need to wear a mask indoors or outdoors because you're now protected. The vaccine is is protection. And then two months later, the CDC changed those guidelines and said, even if you're vaccinated, you still have to wear a mask indoors. Why? Because they said with the Delta variant, it turns out that even if you're vaccinated, you can still get the, 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 the virus and pass it to other people meaning vaccinated people are a danger to you, according to the CDC. So that's one thing I don't understand. I don't understand why I'm supposed to care whether or not people are unvaccinated, why I'm supposed to support something incredibly cruel, which is firing them, causing them to lose their job in the middle of a pandemic, 
because they choose not to be vaccinated. I don't understand why they're a danger to me or anybody else. Here's something else that I, I genuinely don't understand. In the United States, there are 74 million people, 74 million, who are of the ages 0 to 17. So 74 million children, 74 million people under the age of 18 in the United States. Of these 74 million people in the United States under the age of 18, do you know how many have died of COVID-19 since the start of the pandemic in January 2020? So basically for almost two full years. Of 74 million people in this group under 18, a grand total of 655, 655 have died of COVID in two years, in two years. And yet we're still talking about closing schools and forcing kids to learn remotely. And even if they do go to school, forcing them to wear masks all day from morning until night for hour after hour after hour. One of the things that I think has been the most irrational component of the entire COVID-19 debate is how, how we have refused to value or quantify the costs of COVID restrictions. We're only allowed to quantify and value the impact from COVID itself, from how many people it kills, from how many people it infects, from how many people get sick. Obviously, when you're deciding policy, that is an important thing to know. How many people are dying? How many people are getting sick? But you should also be valuing and quantifying the cost to the policies being enacted in the name of stopping COVID. So what are the the long-term effects of keeping kids out of school for two years or a year and a half? What are the costs to their intellect and to their emotional development at the age of 12 or 10 or 14 or 8 to keeping them out of school for protracted periods of time, having them go to school, then come back home, having to wear masks around their face all day, having their friends wear masks around their face all day. What are the costs of that? What are the costs of keeping people isolated and preventing them from returning to normal life, even before the COVID pandemic? There was a mental health crisis in the United States. There were people warning in 2018 and in 2019 that not just in the United States, but Western democracies generally, that rates of depression and anxiety disorders and suicide and addiction were skyrocketing. Clearly, people were not getting what they need from modern society, from modern Western society. And maybe it's because of neoliberalism and the loss of jobs and people working very unfulfilled uh, jobs are not being able to have any job security. Their towns being shuttered. People don't have churches anymore or labor unions or synagogues or other ties to communities. They have very unfulfilled jobs that they go to. But even that one thing that they had that tied them to other people, which was work, has been taken away from them in the COVID pandemic. Kids who are 20, 21, who have been looking forward to college now suddenly can't go to school. If they do go to school, it's in a very repressive environment. They can't do anything. They're const- they have a whole bureaucracy of COVID managers that's never going away. And of course, this is creating even far worse mental health pathologies 
than was plaguing Western democracies before. There was an article in the New York Times last week that so many people are suffering from such serious mental health pathologies that therapists around the country are reporting in large numbers that they have to turn away patients all the time because they simply don't have enough uh, bandwidth or capacity to take on new patients because so many people are in need of psychological or therapeutic counseling. Even more disturbing, the leading cause of death in the United States now, the leading cause of death in the United States for people 18 to 54, I'm sorry, 18 to 45, 18 to 45 is not COVID. It's not car accidents. It's not cancer. It's drug overdose, drug overdoses. One of the reasons is there is huge amounts of fentanyl that are now being laced with all kinds of drugs entering the country, including cocaine, heroin, methamphetamine, and other drugs. But another major reason is that drug use and addiction are up because when people don't have connection to society, when they don't have the ability to go and fulfill our needs as social and political animals, when they're isolated at home, they become lost and directionless. And that's when addiction skyrockets. It becomes a mean that people have for self-medicating mental health pathologies. So these restrictions that are being imposed two years into the pandemic are exacting enormous costs, enormous costs on every sector of society, virtually. And what I find so disturbing is that we have been trained that we can't think that way in that rational cost-benefit analysis way, even though we think that way about every other sector of life. I had written something this week where I said, obviously, I was talking about this new study showing that drug addiction and drug overdose and fentanyl are now the leading cause of death for that age group. And I was making the argument that we need to start considering more the costs on the other side of the ledger from COVID lockdowns, quarantines, restrictions, masks, everything else that causes a rupture with our society and our community. And one of the things I wrote was, look, obviously every COVID death is a tragedy. That's true. Every COVID death, every death from COVID is a tragedy. And then I wrote, but every death from lockdowns, from addiction, from overdose, from suicide, from depression is also a tragedy, as is other non-fatal forms of suffering. And because I wrote this in that formulation, every COVID death is a tragedy, but a lot of people mock that idea that you shouldn't ever say every COVID death is a tragedy, but. That but part is somehow immoral. You should just leave it at every COVID death is a tragedy, period. But down that road lies complete irrationality. We don't think about anything else under that rubric. For example, if I were to say to you, if someone were to say to me, do you favor the elimination of cars, the banning of cars on the grounds that millions of people every year die in car accidents? which is true, millions of people every year die in car accidents, including young people. I would say to you, look, every death from a car accident is tragic, but the cost for banning cars is so gargantuan 
that it would mean it wouldn't be worth it. And nobody would think that statement was controversial. No one wants to ban cars. And the reason people don't want to ban cars isn't because they don't recognize that the deaths from car accidents are tragic. Everybody thinks deaths from car accidents are tragic. But everybody would say, of course, deaths from car, car accidents are tragic, but the cost to banning cars would be too great. Or you could say the de- every death from heart disease is tragic, but I think it would be too much of an invasion of personal liberty for the government to mandate exercise and ban junk food. So in every other sector, we think that way. We think, okay, there are these deaths. And there's a way that we could avoid these deaths, but the cost that we would have to incur in order to avoid these deaths is too great. And yet somehow when it comes to COVID, we've been trained that it's immoral to do anything other than say everything that we need to do to stop more people from dying is inherently justifiable, regardless of the cost. You're not allowed to think of the costs of anti-COVID restrictions. And this is not only irrational, this is grotesquely immoral. So many people now are suffering from this two-year separation between normality and community and purpose and connection and spirituality because of the rupture in, in the normal way that we live. That to say that you can no longer, you can never consider the suffering that people are enduring, the deaths that are being caused by anti-COVID restrictions, even in a post-vaccine world where the probability that you're going to die of COVID if you choose to get the vaccine is extraordinarily low, that to me is not just irrational. That has become grotesquely immoral to devalue all of that other suffering and all of those other deaths and to say that only deaths from COVID count, only suffering from the virus itself matters. And that is absolutely the foundation for our discourse. And you know, one of the things I hope we'll talk about in, in uh, the Q&A that I'm about to do is w- what's motivating this irrationality? What, what, is, what is the purpose of it? I mean, it seems clear to me that, as I said at the start, one of the things the pandemic did is it shifted power from certain groups of people to other groups of people. And the people who received this new power, who became extremely important in society when we elevated COVID to the number one concern, don't want to give that power up. Epidemiologists want to continue to be treated as these kind of sage figures. Anthony Fauci loves having authority over every aspect of American policymaking, even though he was never elected. Every one of these colleges and universities have Growing COVID bureaucracies, COVID managers, every TV show and film has to have, it's an entire industry that's, that's, that's popping up. And those people want to make sure that the idea remains that the only thing that matters is minimizing the risk of COVID because that's where they get power and that's where they get their industry from. And I think even more disturbingly is the fact that every day that goes by, that we accept the idea that the government has the right at its whim to cancel events, to force us to get get vaccines, to tell us what businesses have to close, to impose restrictions on our ability to travel. It trains us more and more to submit to government authority 
every day that has gone by when we've normalized and accepted the idea that we should be banned from the internet if we question pronouncements of public health institutions has made us just more conformist, more submissive, more acquiescent. And those are the other serious long-term damages and consequences that concern me greatly from continuing in this mindset that says all that matters is avoiding the cost of COVID, but not the cost of policies undertaken in the name of stopping it. So those are some of the things I'm struggling with, to put it mildly. Um, And I think that this is something that a lot of people have been discussing for a while. But what seems clear is with the Omicron virus variant, it has given fuel to a lot of the worst trends. When it looked like they were finally dying out, it has become almost like a steroid to ensure that it continues and accelerates, even though there's no data that the Omicron virus is more dangerous than the variants that preceded it. And the only available data on that question is that while it's more contagious, it seems like it's less threatening. It's not conclusive yet that that's true, but the data that's preliminary points in that direction. And yet there's very little discussion of that when you hear Dr. Fauci or other health professionals talk about why we have to shut things down and the name of this new variant. They emphasize how quickly it spreads and yet very rarely talk about what the dangers actually are to people from this variant. So it's kind of left for you to just assume that shutting everything down in the name of stopping it is is justifiable. So I will leave that there. Um, I'm sure a lot of the questions will delve into a few of the other issues that I wanted to cover. Um, so the first person in the queue is Andrew. You can go ahead and unmute yourself and uh, go ahead and ask your question. Hello, sir. So I have uh, several thoughts about this. Um, an analogy that came to mind when you were talking about how the Black Lives Matter protesters being not just allowed to, but encouraged to protest in the middle of the outbreak and how that kind of broke the framing of this as a scientific uh, issue or being handled scientifically in your mind. There are some other things that have occurred um, that are kind of like entrances to a rabbit hole where you start having questions. And right now that's not really tolerated, as you were saying, having any kind of questions. One of the other main points for me was um, the continuing total disregard of natural immunity and the total lack of effort to get a number on who is, uh, who has a passive natural immunity that we're not counting because they haven't been vaccinated. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me because when we get these numbers about herd immunity, herd immunity would include the immunity from the natural immunity, but they only talk about it in the, in the numbers as the vaccinated. It just doesn't make any sense. And even Fauci couldn't give an answer to this. And I've heard other people try to explain it away by saying, well, you get variable amounts of the virus when you make contact with someone, someone could be sicker than someone else and then have better immunity. But I have news for you. The vaccines are variable as well. And there's research that shows that the natural immunity lasts longer and might be stronger. So there are these points that show that this isn't scientific and it's more about theater and sanitation theater and wiping down uh, subways with Lysol when we know we're dealing with a respiratory virus, with not even the method of transmission or in schools that they do the same thing or masks where you walk to your table with your mask on, eat 
and have it off. But if you go to the bathroom, you have to put it back on, even though you're sharing the same air for an hour and a half. It, it, it's complete nonsense. And at some point, people are going to have to start asking questions. And the, the goal, I think, is to keep the sanitation theater going um, because they can't actually end the virus. And they think that they have to exterminate it through vaccines. This is the line that we have to get rid of the virus globally. It's not going to happen. And so we have to refuse these frameworks of that we have to end the virus and until then just sanitation theater or that not even one death is acceptable, which is clearly, it sounds nice, but not the case. 50,000 people die of the flu in a bad flu year. The flu kills more children than COVID does. Are we acting like not one child's death is acceptable from the flu? Are we acting like that as a society? Of course not. My mother has COPD. If she gets COVID, she's in trouble. If she gets a common cold, she's in trouble. So we need to reject these simplistic frameworks and talk about harm reduction in in all situations, whether it's the kind of downsides you were talking about or uh, with COVID. So I'd just like to get that out and hear your thoughts. No, thank you. I mean, those were some really great points and they, it really underscores for me exactly what I was saying earlier about, I'm not, you know, it sounds like a rhetorical device when you say about people with whom you, you disagree that you can't understand the rationale that they're using and you start to believe they don't have any, but it's genuinely the case. I don't, what are the answers to those things that you just raised? I mean, one of the things that disturbs me most is the climate that was created early on where genuinely, if you di- di- dissented in any way from the Fauci world health organization consensus, you were deemed to be spreading disinformation, even though they now acknowledge that they were wrong themselves about so many things and not only wrong, but Fauci basically admitted that he deliberately lied about the level of vaccination that would be needed to reach herd immunity because he thought that the population wasn't ready to hear that or the level of infection. And people, when you point out that Dr. Fauci in March of 2020 was saying that masks were ineffective, that asymptomatic people should not be wearing masks. And then five months later, it exactly reversed to you must wear masks at all times. People will say, oh, Dr. Fauci didn't really believe that, that when he said it. He knew that masks were effective. He was basically giving a little white lie to the public because they wanted to ensure that masks were available to healthcare workers and not to the public. So when you see politicians, which is what Dr. Fauci is, he's a government official, lying repeatedly or just in error. And then at the same time, you're creating a climate where you're not allowed to question their pronouncements, the pronouncements of CEOs of Pfizer or Moderna, you know, the largest and most profitable pharmaceutical companies in the world. That is when things become extremely disturbing. And, you know, I was just reading, and I, I had forgotten about this, but four months ago or five months ago in July, Joe Biden went onto a, a town hall on CNN and he said, if you are vaccinated, you don't need to worry. You will not get the coronavirus. And this is what Moderna and Pfizer were selling at the time was if you get vaccinated, you're 98%, 96% certain not to get the virus, no breakthrough cases. And the breakthrough cases very quickly we found were much, much more frequent than what we were led to believe to the point where now it's extremely unsurprising 
that breakthrough cases happen. We shouldn't even be calling them breakthrough cases. It's very common for people who are vaccinated and boosted to get COVID. And then, you know, I think you're exactly right as well on this question of natural immunity. It was declared prohibited for people to make individual choices about whether it made sense for them to get the vaccine. So I remember Joe Rogan in a very kind of common sense way about six months ago, got into huge amounts of trouble because he said, for someone who's 20 years old or 21 years old, who has already gotten COVID and therefore has antibodies, the same antibodies you're going to get if, if you take the vaccine, for them to say, look, this is a rushed vaccine that has been approved without the standard safeguards. The chances that I'm going to die or get sick at my age is extremely low especially since I now have natural immunity, I judge it as more dangerous for me to get the vaccine than I do for me to get COVID. Joe Rogan said, you can't say that's irrational. And he was mauled for that. But how can you say that's irrational? That's inherently rational for someone to say. And, you know, the thing that's most disturbing is this idea that we have to get rid of COVID completely. We're never going to get rid of COVID completely. We don't accept that in any other context. We don't say there'll be no cars driving until there are zero deaths from automobiles. We don't say that about anything else. And that's what concerns me the most is I feel like there has been created this new bureaucracy, this new means of state power and centralized authority that will never go away because the objective that has to be fulfilled before the pandemic is declared over, which is the elimination of COVID, is almost by definition impossible. And... That is a, a really disturbing thought that we are going to continue to have our lives governed by these unelected and unaccountable science bureaucracies and by these highly inconsistent and irrational set of principles that continue to confound somebody who's trying to isolate any kind of irrational framework. I, one last point to validate what you're saying here is that the, the, the way they're doing this is by framing this as a public health issue, not a private health issue, a private health decision. And you might have believed that early on when we didn't know as much, but what does the same logic apply to the booster? Because I can tell you personally, when I took the uh, Pfizer shot, I got a pain in my leg. I took the second shot. I got a pain in my leg again, traveled my chest, went away. I don't really look forward to the idea of getting a booster. What about the third, second booster, the third booster? Does it ever not become a private health decision in any I mean, that's the underpinning key, I think, is that if we continue to allow them to just say that we can dictate your medical decisions based on the public good, which obviously they're not actually interested in, um, just based on the questions we've raised here, then it's never going to end. So we have to end that. No, I mean, I think it's such an important point. You know, I know uh, in my own family. You know, we have uh, two kids, 12 and 14, a third uh, child that we are responsible for who's 17. That raises different questions based on their health needs, based on their risks. And you get to the point where you start wanting to think, okay, at that age, is it worth it to get the vaccine? Is it worth it to get both doses? Now, is it worth it to get a booster? What are the risk levels? And then you actually get to the point where you realize you don't really, as a parent, have that choice. It's actually been taken away from you. Because if you want to travel with them, if you want them to go to certain schools, if you want them to be able to enter public spaces, they have to show proof of first two vaccines, then three vaccines, then four vaccines, then five vaccines. And you will be at the point where you just internally in your mind are conditioned to accept the fact that when it comes to fundamental questions, 
like what drugs you are going to be put into your child's body or what substances are going to be put into your own. You just accept the fact that you don't have that choice, that that choice has been made for you because the, the punishments and the limitations that will be imposed on you if you don't comply are too great to endure. And it's that behavioral conditioning that is becoming a major cause of, of concern for me as well as we head into the third year of this pandemic. Um, next person in line is, I believe it's Joey. It's, these names are hard to read until you unmute yourself. There you go, Joey. Yeah. Hi, I was just wondering, you've heard the theory from uh, Dr. Smith uh, about um, our society being in the grips of a mass psychosis or a mass formation. And if you've ever personally tried engaging with someone like so deeply invested in the COVID narrative that they see nothing else. You know, I think... I mean, I have had that experience before, uh, and I, I'm sorry I didn't hear the first question. So, because it was a little sketchy with the connection, so you can repeat that once I answer the second one. But you know, I do think that what has happened is, in some way, COVID has almost become a religion. Um, there's a history of of kind of apocalyptic mm-hmm. cults and bizarre. Uh, spiritual movements arising in pandemics because it makes sense when life is disrupted to this extent that you'd look for new forms of meaning. And it, you know, it first became a political marker, a kind of source of cultural and political identity that you were wearing a mask. It meant that you believed in science. It meant that you were a liberal. If you got a vaccine, same thing. If you got your booster, same thing. But I think it's taken on this kind of broader meaning now where battling COVID is almost like our purpose as human beings and that everything else is subordinated to it. And if you don't accept that, Mm. then somehow it means that you yourself are waging war on science or that you actually don't have empathy for people who are dying of COVID. And what's so frustrating about that is that the people who have decided to view the world that way, in my view, have no empathy for the people who are suffering as a result of the refusal on the part of society (laughs) to return to something resembling normalcy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my son is in his 20s and he just refuses. I tried to give him the um, a book about it for Christmas, but um, he just doesn't want to even en- entertain it. And that's what I was asking about in the first half was just there's a, a professor um, named uh, Dr. Uh, Matthias Desmet, and he thinks that um, we're our society's in the grips of a mass psychosis or mass formation and that it makes them sort of hypnotized to any counter narrative or anything like that have you heard of this i mean i've certainly heard i haven't not that specific uh theorist or that doctor or that book but certainly the idea of mass psychosis or collective mania is something i've I've studied and thought a lot about in other contexts i think that happened after the 9-11 attack for example for several years before that spell was broken i absolutely think that that's what's happening here you know in part like it you know I do think a good analogy is 9-11 in the sense that when the 9-11 attack happened, followed by the anthrax attacks, it was actually a genuinely alarming thing. Like, it was a genuine threat to our survival, and so we were conditioned to be fearful of it and therefore willing to acquiesce to authority in a way that we wouldn't have prior to that attack. The arrival of a new virus, and remember early on those horrible scenes that we heard about in China, followed by Italy and Spain— with doctors having to pick and choose who lives and dies and hospitals being overrun. That was genuinely terrifying. A new virus that we don't understand that's killing huge numbers of people. We were told younger people were dying. 
And from that moment, once you get people into that condition where they're so fearful for their own survival, and then you tell them you're going to be locked down at home. And so everything familiar to you has now been taken away and you're going to be just kind of glued to the same voices telling you to be scared and worried and scared and worried and protect yourself, protect yourself and view each other as threats to one another. I absolutely can easily see that fostering this kind of collective mania where people are almost now addicted to the idea of this fear. They don't want to give it up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, next up in line is Tom. Let me go ahead and take the next call. Just one sec. Hello. Glenn. All right. Tom, go ahead. How are you? Um, yeah, I think the big question is why? And, you know, I don't, I'm not a, <laughs> I don't want to be a conspiracy theorist, but, but why? I mean, Fauci is a smart man. He's obviously, I mean, he is a politician. Maybe he's not the greatest scientist, but I think he understands that the pandemic isn't going away, that the vaccines are, are, you know, not effective. They won't stop COVID and like, you know, a, a polio vaccine would stop it or smallpox, you know? So what is the reason when is it because these corporations that are so invested, you know, like the online corporations, social media, they've been making so much more money or did, did, did Pfizer and Moderna or just, I mean, is it corruption or is it just something else? Is it a, is it a mass psychosis or is it corruption? You know, that people are making too much money and we're, we're being screwed. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't think it's something overtly conspiratorial. So let me go back to, the 9-11 framework, because that was the issue on which I primarily focused that impelled me to become a journalist in the first place was, you know, in 2005, we were three, four years away from a 9-11 attack. There had been no repetition of a mass casualty attack on the United States. And yet every year, the powers vested in the government became more extreme. They were escalating as we moved further and further away from 9-11. And so I did a lot of thinking about how fear operates on a population, how it causes us to kind of acquiesce in a permanent way. You know, one of the one of the things that I think people have forgotten is a lot of those uh, measures enacted in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, like the Patriot Act, for example, were recognized even at the time, even with the World Trade Center still literally in, in, ru- in rubble, that these were extreme measures that we were vesting in the government, and we would never ordinarily do it absent an emergency. And the argument was, you're right, these are extreme measures, but don't worry, they're constructed to be temporary. Once this crisis is uh, resolved, until it, once, it's, uh, once it's managed and once it's resolved, we'll go back to normal. And here we are 19 years later. Yeah, we're, we're, here we are 19 years later. These things are never temporary. The Patriot Act still is in full force. No one ever talks about repealing the Patriot Act. It has just become part of the woodwork. We don't even notice it anymore. And so what was an extreme and unthinkable piece of legislation has now just become our normal way of life. And I can easily see that happening with these new, I mean, you go and look at the website of any college, of every college, and you'll see there's like COVID departments, you know, COVID managers and COVID policymakers and COVID counselor. None of this is going away. These bureaucracies don't disappear once this power is vested in them, they become self-propelling. What happens when the next national disaster, international disaster? I mean, we're 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 going to lose everything. Yeah. All right, Tom. Uh, I appreciate. It. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, 
Next caller is Grace. Let me just go ahead and put you up on the queue. Go ahead, Grace. Hey, Glenn. I'm going to try not to fangirl, but um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on um, kind of the overall suppression and lack of focus, I guess, on therapeutics. Um, My dad, both my parents actually recently had COVID. My mom got over it pretty quickly. My dad had just had uh, a major surgery and then had Lyme disease and had a tougher time with it. Um, And so they went to their doctor and asked for ivermectin, which I know is kind of controversial. And the doctor got pretty angry. And then my mom was looking around to find monoclonal antibodies, which I think are less controversial and have shown to be pretty effective. Um, And they said he couldn't have it because he didn't he wasn't obese, diabetic or over 65. Um, And then after my mom got her antibody test back, she went to donate plasma um, in order to help with the monoclonal antibodies. And they said they had um, a really large supply. So that was kind of odd to us, I guess, that. um, And then after actually my dad had visited his doctor, got an email um, as a reminder, we don't treat COVID-19. So it seems bizarre to me that after all this time, there aren't any kind of widespread available treatments, even though there there seem to be some that have been effective. Um, and kind of going off of that, I guess, I know, uh, like the World Economic Forum has done a lot of talk about um, vaccines being an entry point to society and um, how that can be a way for people to prove their identity um, as, as um, they kind of start to get vaccinated at young ages. Foreign policy um, just came out with the, an article, that magazine, that surveillance may be our only way out of the pandemic, but we have to rethink our idea of privacy. And I, I know this is a conspiracy back in the day, but Sweden is literally now putting uh, microchips in their hands to prove vaccination status. So just curious if you have thoughts on um, kind of the, the focus on vaccination rather than treatment um, in, in kind of two years in. You know, it's um, it's a great question. It's it's part of the thing that makes no sense. So I remember one of the first times I really began weighing in on COVID from the perspective of free and open debate was, and I may not get the details all correct because it's been like a year by now, but Senator Paul, Rand Paul, had put onto his YouTube channel an actual Senate hearing that was conducted in the actual United States Senate, where very credentialed and prestigious researchers had gone to testify about the possibility that ivermectin could be an effective treatment for COVID. They weren't saying that it was. They weren't recommending anyone take it. They were talking about the studies they intended to conduct to determine whether it had therapeutic value, something that you would think everybody would be interested in, in an illness that was making people sick. And for the crime of putting on his YouTube channel an actual Senate hearing where scientists were talking about the protocols they were devising to determine the efficacy of ivermectin, that video was removed. People were barred by Google from watching a Senate hearing because it asked whether or not ivermectin might be an effective treatment. That was a huge red alert to me about why was it such a kind of... uh, like third rail to ask whether or not there were effective treatments. I suppose it was because if you have effective treatments that decreases the need to get the vaccine. When I was talking earlier about the risk calculus that you would engage in and someone, the first caller had raised the issue of natural immunity. So if you're 21, you've had COVID, you have natural immunity, you're healthy, the risk that you're going to get sick is very low. And then on top of that, 
you know that if you do get COVID, the chances that you're going to get sick are very low, but then you have a, a, a potentially effective treatment, then the, the rationale for getting the vaccine diminishes even further. So there seemed from the beginning to be this fixation on avoiding any discussion of whether there were treatments, even though it seems like, you know, when rich and powerful people get sick, they do now get monoclonal antibody treatments and other forms of treatment. Clearly, medical doctors have devised a a protocol of treatment that is more effective than they had in March of 2020. And yet there's no discussion of that permitted. And I always found the sensitivity toward the ivermectin discussion to be absolutely bizarre, given that you should want scientists examining and investigating and openly discussing the possibility of treatments. And yet it seemed as though it was like stigmatized, you know, whether it was like, if you were interested in talking about treatments, it was like you were an enemy of, of, of the vaccine and you were called anti-vax, which is, you know, part of what I indicated I wanted to talk about, which is this term anti-vax has become this, this phrase used to vilify anybody. You know, you can say, I'm vaccinated, as I said earlier that I was. You can say publicly that you're vaccinated and that if people ask you, you encourage them to get the vaccine, which I've said publicly many times, including countless times on Fox News. But the minute you question any other policy decree about vaccine mandates or vaccine passports or raise the issue of of the potential for therapeutic treatment, you immediately get this label anti-vax applied to you, which is bizarre just on linguistic grounds alone that you are vaccinated. You've said you're vaccinated. You believe in the vaccine science, the science of vaccines. You encourage other people to get vaccinated if they ask you. And yet you're somehow anti-vax because you dissent on some form of orthodoxy. And I think you're right to point out to this issue of treatment being this real sore spot. And, you know, you can't help but notice that, a perpetual vaccine is extremely profitable to very powerful pharmaceutical companies. You know, they also are the same pharmaceutical companies that would develop treatments or maybe they'd be different ones. But this idea of a perpetual vaccine seems particularly appealing to this scientific establishment for reasons I admit I don't fully understand. I, I definitely want to give other people a turn, but I'm wondering if you might be able to touch quickly on your thoughts on the legality of the vaccine mandates. I know there was the case in the early 1900s that some people have t- uh, cited, but curious your your thoughts from a your legal background on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I do think when I say that it's a complex question, what I basically mean is under the case law as it's evolved, not as I wish it were, or I, my own understanding of the constitution would, would yield. But under the case law, it is true that the executive branch has been vested extraordinary power to act in the name of crises and threats to the public health or threats to the national security in a way that I think is extremely alarming, you know, and has really altered what was supposed to be the balance of power of our government. That was one of the reasons I began writing about politics in the first place was in the wake of 9-11, there were all these radical executive power theories that were floating around and ultimately institutionalized, which said that as the minute there's a threat to national security identified, the president has more or less absolute and unlimited power to take whatever steps he wants in the name of stopping it. And even if Congress limits what he can do, so the Congress says you can't spy on Americans unless you get the warrants 
uh, that the law requires, the president has the right to ignore those statutes because under the Constitution, the president is actually authorized to take any steps he wants. And I think, you know, that's going to be the argument the executive branch is going to make. And unfortunately, there's a lot of case law to support it. Okay, I'll let someone else go, but thank you so much. Love All you. right, Grace, thank you. Really appreciate it. Uh, the next person is Shauna. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Oh, I think Shauna dropped off. So the next person is Sergey. Uh, thank you, Glenn. So I wanted to give kind of a perspective on common theme, which kind of goes through the heads of the people who um, kind of push all of these uh, uh, restrictions, right? And what I see is kind of common theme of um, doing something mildly inconvenient for the sake of, of the greater good, right? So this idea of, okay, there is a greater good in wearing masks, right? So I'm going to wear a mask because it's for greater good. But it, it seems like it's, it's, it's a common theme when, uh, remember when, uh, they started, uh, when they started this um, Floyd protest? They didn't just protest. There was like a feet washing Right. So for the greater good, I'm going to wash somebody's feet. So then there is also there is there is some kind of like obsession with taking some kind of uh, and pushing everybody to experience some inconvenience, to experience some kind of sacrifices for the sake of some kind of greater good. And it seems like very common theme, not just with COVID, but with other aspects of life. Kind of, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. You know, I actually do think that you do have to go a little bit deeper to understand some of these dynamics. And I guess I'll go back to the fact that if you have human beings finding meaning in certain sectors like religion and other forms of living, like living in small communities and villages. And then you have an industrial revolution that suddenly puts people into gigantic cities where they don't know their neighbors. They're severed from their biological families. We move away when we're 18. We pay people to take care of our kids and to take care of our elderly parents. We don't really have a lot of religion anymore as a society. We, a lot of the things that gave us fulfillment previously are things that no longer exist. We don't have weekend bowling leagues or labor unions, the things I was talking about earlier. And then suddenly you add on to that a pandemic that isolates people even further. They're going to look for meaning. Human beings need a way to feel like we have a broader purpose. I think that's a common craving. It's something that is universally detected in religions, mm -hmm. across cultures, across uh across eras. Um, it's something that seems to be a, a universal human drive. And, you know, I think the mask wearing, as I was alluding to earlier, clearly took on significance way beyond anything related to the public health. There has been, have there have been top level Biden officials. I don't mean like health establishment dissidents. I mean, scientists who were hired by the Biden administration from the start, who came out and have said that the idea that those cloth masks that cover our faces give you protection for any more than a few seconds when you're inside is blatantly preposterous. 
and that they have deliberately misled people about the level of protection that that provides. If you're going to wear an N95 surgical mask or the equivalent of that, then you would get added protection. But these cough masks are really just theater. And I think people know that they're just theater. And yet we continue to use them. And I think the reason why is what you alluded to, which is that it's kind of a way of feeling like we're connected to this broader purpose. I think the way you described it is very apt. It's, it's a ritual, right? It, it's a common ritual. It's kind of like people were wearing, I don't know, cross on their neck before, and now they need to put cloth on the face and also, you know, put put uh, some some this fancy sign in their backyard and also say that we don't need police and I'm okay with my car being broken as long as we are doing it for greater good. I think it's all kind of connected to this theme of uh, mild sacrifices for the sake of some imaginary greater good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and you see the kind of religious overtones of how people have been talked about who have been dissident in any way. So people who refuse to get the vaccine are these kind of like dirty, sinful, unwashed people who have to be ostracized. They're not blessed. They're kind of sinners. It does take on this very similar iconography. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's a ter- terrible person. It's called terrible person. Yeah, yeah, because they're <laughs> not fulfilling people. their broader religious duty to the greater good. I think exactly. That's yeah. Then, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's that. I think that's that's kind of a bigger problem, right? Like, how, how do we break through this kind of religion? New, new kind of fully, poorly formed religion, which kind of taken over. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I think I think it is one of the problems is, you know, I think for a lot of people, there's almost it's almost like there's a lack of desire to return to normalcy pre COVID normalcy. I think people are finding so much Mm -hmm. meaning and purpose and fulfillment and identity in what whatever it is they're doing as part of this pandemic, that there's a desire for it almost not to end, which is why the minute there's like a possibility to seize on something to justify its continuation, like this Omicron variant. There's no sense of, well, let's wait to see if there's evidence that is actually more fatal or more dangerous. There, It's like almost like celebratory. Like we were we were given something that lets us continue with this obsession and to continue to talk about lockdowns and restrictions instead of returning, returning to normal life. I think it's very clear that there's at least on the part of a lot of people, they're, they're happier in this current restrictive framework than they were in the pre-COVID uh, normalcy, and they don't want to return to that. All right, Sergey, thanks so much. The next caller is JD. Go ahead and unmute yourself. JD, are you there? Okay, uh, JD dropped off. So the next caller is Jody. Hi, Glenn. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Um, I just wanted to comment on, you know, something that happened recently, um, like the level of fear that's going on right now, Um, like high schools around the country, I'm assuming, and especially around the state that I live in. We had all these generalized threats for uh, a school shooting or a bombing to occur on uh, Friday the 17th. And it was just like a generalized like TikTok meme thing that was going around. It didn't really specify any specific school or anything. But, you know, all the superintendents were sending out letters and warning families not to be worried. And 
you know, my, my kid went to school, half the kids were absent. And I'm like, there wasn't even any legitimate, you know, threat. And I was just really shocked that so many people chose to stay home for their kids to stay home. And to me, it was just like kind of a warning sign, like, wow, like people are really scared out there. And maybe, it, you know, it's, it has to do with COVID. It has to do with a lot of things, but it just felt really weird and ominous to think that half the kids not to come to school just because of, a, of some memes and some TikTok things going around, like a virus. I was wondering what you thought about that. Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't agree more not to keep returning to this 9-11 framework, but I do think it's very instructive one of the things that, as some of you might recall, that happened in the first few years was they created this brand new bureaucracy, the Department of Homeland Security, which, of course, is still with us to this very day. No one even thinks about dismantling that. And one of the things that would happen is they would issue these. Right. They had this color coded system that was supposed to signify the level of threat we faced in terms of a imminent terrorist attack. And they would often elevate the the, the color scheme um, it was Tom Ridge, who was the Department of Homeland Security secretary, the first one, and he would move it arbitrarily from orange to red. There'd be no specific threat, nothing concrete. They would just say, be more scared. It's just scarier and more dangerous right now. And they would you could you could see people would stay home from school. The, 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 the roads were emptier. People would call in sick to work. And that was a really alarming sign about the ease with which a population can be conditioned to be manipulated through fear. And I see very similar behavioral patterns now, and I find it very alarming for the reason that you said. Right. Yeah, I just figured I'd make that comment, but uh, thanks for doing this. I'm really enjoying these Thank you. Thank you for for coming. I really appreciate that as well. And thank you for your question. All right, great. All right, the next uh, caller is Paul. Hey, Glenn. Hey, before I get to my questions, uh, just something that uh, Jody just touched on and that you talked about. Uh, I'm in the North Texas area, and um, hey, I, I really sorry. Can you go back into the queue? I think I, I'm gonna have to actually accept blame for that. I was trying to move JD to the next caller because I think he fell off. So let me go. Actually, go ahead and see if I can fix this. Just give me one second. Um, all right, I'm going to stop playing with the queue because apparently I'm not very skilled at that yet. Um, just one second. Okay, Shauna, go ahead and uh, unmute yourself. You should be next. Uh, no problem. Um, I wanted to tap into your attorney side of your brain um, and ask, uh, you know, my observation is uh, I live in the state of Washington but I recently moved here from the state of Arizona and never in my naive life have I ever experienced the idea of living in two separate worlds. And I know that in general, when we talk about all the restrictions and mandates and when I read articles from the New York Times or who on um, whatever, it's from a general, <clears throat> excuse me, from an American standpoint, like almost monolithic in how things are done. And in reality, obviously that's not the case. It's because we have state governments. You can go to one state and have a totally different living experience in many ways than another state. And so I find myself 
you know, listening to, let's say, Joe Rogan and fantasizing about living in Texas and and that sort of thing. And so I wonder, going back to the attorney side of your brain, you know, me being Pollyanna-ish, is there anything legally that people like myself can be doing locally since politics is local to kind of fight back to, I mean, anything just, and again, I'm trying to be as optimistic as I can, but just this boiling, I feel this boiling rage underneath of, wait a second, why can't, why am I living this life? And I have other family members who are living a different life in the same nation. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's it's definitely, I mean, there's always, of course, been ideological enclaves and different states have had different political approaches. That's not new. I think what's new, though, is the fact that, and this is I'm obviously not the first person to observe this, it's almost a cliche, we're incapable of operating with a common set of facts. And in part, I think that the, the main reason for that is the internet has really fostered the ability of people to wall themselves off from any kind of opposing views or any kind of dissent. If you look at how cable news is done, for example, even, you know, six or seven years ago, not that long ago, a staple of cable news like CNN, MSNBC, Fox, all of them would be, they would have some sort of superficial political debate about some, you know, kind of banal political controversy of the day. And they would at least have on like a Democratic strategist, whatever that meant, and a Republican strategist, whatever that is. And they would have a clash of talking points. So if you are watching, you've at least got the, 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 the sense, like the facade of disagreement. And you heard what the other side's talking points were. I have a friend who works at one of the two major liberal networks. He's a, or she is a host of a show. And what they told me is that, when you host a cable show, you don't just get show by show ratings, you get segment by segment ratings. And if they put somebody on, on CNN or MSNBC, who's critical of the Democratic Party, you can watch the people just turning the channel. You can see them in their, with their remotes in their hand, clicking away. And so it trains them not to put on anyone who's saying anything upsetting to their ideological preconceptions. And so we are completely insulated in these worlds where unless you deliberately seek it out, we never hear any challenges anymore to any of our views. Like those segments don't even exist on cable anymore, as superficial as they were. And obviously, you know, from my, you asked me to tap into the lawyer part of my brain, which I try really hard to keep buried underneath multiple levels of protection. So I never get it tapped into, but since you asked, I'll open it up a little bit and just recall, you know, I remember if you go to court, And let's say you sue somebody and they don't show up because they can't afford a lawyer or they just don't, you know, don't have their act together enough to show up. And you go to court alone and you have to still convince the jury of your side. You can pretty much convince a jury of anything if you're the only one there to present the series of the the series of facts that you want them to hear. And no one's there objecting or offering a, a countervailing view. That's what's happening is we live in these two parallel worlds. We get fed what it is we want to hear. And there's no ability to critically evaluate it because no one's ever encouraging us to do so. They're just feeding our 
most primitive instincts, our adrenaline, our endorphins, our rage, our anger, and we become addicted to that. We don't want to hear any dissent. So we just keep believing more and more the world in which we believe. I do think there's starting to be some backlash to that. I think in, with COVID in particular, you know, one of, I think the consensus is the reason the Democrats lost Virginia after seeming to transform it into more or less of a blue state is because of the anger over school closings. And I think one of the reasons Biden's approval ratings are starting to really rapidly deteriorate is for the same reason. I mean, that's just something that affects our lives in immediate ways that no propaganda in the world can make us blind to. But, you know, in terms of the fact that, you know, I I can't do anything more than I've done. And yet millions of people still believe that Donald Trump was controlled by the Kremlin for five years and they had taken over control of the country through clandestine blackmail. And they're going to go to their graves believing that And there's no truth you can show them that will make them stop thinking that. So I share that frustration. But um, you know, I think all you can do is continue to use platforms like this to try and use reason to persuade people. No, I, I appreciate that. And I will say the one thing I have done locally as a mom of four elementary age students, uh, we've actually homeschooled this year. And I just to, uh, I can do every homeschool stereotype and I promise you, I owe zero, uh, uh, gene jumpers and, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I watched, uh, <laughs> a ton of pop culture and Netflix and Arrested Development. So we're not living in in any bubble by any means, but I did, uh, I can punish them through my tax dollars, so to speak, attached to each one of my children because that money leaves the school district. And I know, and it sounds draconian on my part even and, and harsh, but it's the only thing that I could do to sort of control and provide some normalcy for these four humans that I have to be an advocate for. So I am doing my best, but I appreciate everything that you're doing and having these opportunities. Thank you. Hey, thank you. And, um, you know, let me just say as somebody who, when schools were closed, I kind of got excited for a while about the prospect of homeschooling my own kids. I work at home. So I thought, oh, this is going to be fun. And I tried it and I have gigantic respect for anyone who is able to do that. I was definitely not a good homeschooling teacher. I did not have anywhere near the patience required for it. So, you know, congratulations on that, both because I know how much dedication there is that's required to do that, but also because I think taking matters into your own hands and taking some action um, so that you're not just complaining, but feeling like you're contributing to the solution is extremely important. And um, those things do add up if enough people start in their own little ways, making themselves heard. JD is next up. I think you were in the queue and I accidentally booted you. So for that, I apologize, but I can hear you now. Go ahead. Yeah. Can you hear me now, Glenn? Yep. I can hear you. Uh, so that, that was actually my fault. I got a little turned around with the uh, call of that. All right. Anyways, um, I just wanted to say much respect for the work that you've done on this. And I, I recently, my background is um, in developmental psychopathology. So I have a PhD in, in developmental psych. And I wrote a substack piece touching on some of the issues that you kind of point out is in regards to really kind of trying to understand the social reaction to the pandemic. And I posted the, the piece on your, your Twitter underneath the call-in tweet that you had. But I think I resonate with a lot of what you say about the social fractionation even before the pandemic. And what's interesting when you look in the empirical literature that, that I'm involved with, everybody in the population 
possesses some levels of trait anxiety, depression, and so forth. They're not binary disorders. That's one misnomer. I think the public really has been sort of misinformed about largely via the DSM and other, you know, mental disorder classification schemes. But we all possess, generally speaking, levels of this, and that will that will just differ depending on, you know, certain characteristics. And what happened, in my opinion, my take is that some of what you point out socially it's really, you know, everyone has sort of a diathesis to, to underlying thresholds for experiencing anxiety, fear, panic, and so forth. And when the pandemic came, it really, you know, it exposed those with lower thresholds. And I think what's interesting to me is some of that personality and behavioral traits that track with that also track with political ideology and party affiliation. And I, and I point that out in my substack. And once the pandemic got underway, and I think some of the people in in the, in the governing bodies saw how the population was reacting. I think that's when people like Fauci really started to take an authoritarian turn because they could, you know, they began to see that uh, just by you know issuing edicts or or you know fear mongering, um, they could they could more or less control the population. So. I, I really agree that something is going on. I'm, I'm also familiar a little bit with Desmond's mass formation thing. That seems more of a broader summary type of, of thing, but I really do think there's there's something in the in, in the in the air that you know people really need to to point out. And, and I agree with you 100 percent that you know reason has to win out in terms of a, a rational cost benefit analysis. So I really appreciate the work you're doing, and I just kind of wanted to leave those thoughts there. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I will definitely read your Substack article on this. Um, for those who didn't hear, the link is underneath the tweet I posted announcing this call-in show. Um, you know, I I think obviously when you talk about behavioral patterns of a country as complex as the United States of 320 million people, you're talking about a great deal of, of, of uh, complicated factors and, and mixed dynamic and the like. So I don't want to be reductive about it. But I do think that fear is at the center of so many political uh, struggles because fear is obviously an important component of how we survive. We need fear. Fear is embedded in our instincts. It's something that is stimulated more or less easily, which is necessary, you know, for, for us to evolve and be scared of the things that pose a threat to us. And all good demagogues, all good authoritarians know how to stimulate fear. It's just something they do naturally. If you look at any country in the world, any country in the world, now or over the last several thousand years where where there's recorded history, and you see some abusive centralized authority, almost always they accomplish what they accomplish by making the population fearful of some external threat. Um, It's just part of our tribal instinct as well. It can be a threat that comes from another tribe. It can be a threat that comes from the public health. It can be, it's anything that threatens our survival. We immediately enter into a different realm of, of, of thought. And anyone who recognizes that sees the power in that. And I don't even know that it has to be Dr. Fauci sitting there in May thinking consciously, wow, I see how fearful people are from this pandemic and the authority that is now that's now vesting me, I almost think it's like a human instinct that the way that power intoxicates us means that anyone who's in a position to start 
kind of moving the pieces of the, on the chessboard around because of the power that they've derived through this collective fear almost gets inebriated by that and wants to continue it, wants to kind of keep hold of, of that feeling that they're central and, 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 and in command of, of how people think and how people behave. It's, it's a very uh, luring and, and tempting power. And I absolutely think that's a lot of, of what is going on. Um, but I also think that I think there are a lot of people who don't, who aren't really afraid of, of COVID because after two years, I think people who are under a certain age know that it doesn't really pose a threat to them. I don't think they genuinely fear it, even for their relatives. I think that it has become something that is almost like this warped form of purpose and spirituality that I find really disturbing. That is not a place that we should be getting purpose and connection and meaning from, from the the role that we play in how we think about a, a pandemic and our relationship to science bureaucracies. And yet, I mean, I absolutely see that happening. And I think that that's going to make it very difficult to convince people to let go of this COVID pandemic as some central part of their identity. Um, all right, Jitty, thank you so much. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say uh, thank you, Glenn. So, I'll all right. Yep. Have a great night. And I will definitely check out your piece um, and uh, try and promote it if I can. Um, yeah, absolutely. Paul, go ahead. You are next. Hey, Glenn, can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you. Yeah. So uh, what I was saying uh, earlier is I, I don't remember the uh, person's name, but they were talking about the security theater and the uh, hoax threats. Um, and that there was no real established threat, but a bunch of people were freaking out. And the only thing I wanted to say on that is just here in the North Texas area, uh, we actually, law enforcement in multiple communities arrested 14 students, uh, middle school and high school students, that some of them uh, created and posted threats on Snapchat, and others propagated and spread threats on Snapchat. Um, saying that they were going to shoot up the schools. And so these kids are now looking at up to 10 years, uh, 10-year sentences, maximum 10-year sentences for what they were doing. Uh, Even though all the threats, absolutely they were hoax threats, but they were legitimate threats that these people forwarded. So it it wasn't, um, you know, just basic security theater where there was nothing to be concerned about. There were there were legitimate threats that were posted and promulgated on social media and law enforcement had to go in and, you know, investigate each one. And unfortunately there are some kids that have now ruined their lives because of what they did. Um, But uh, moving on, the uh, question that I had for you getting back to COVID um, and how people have reacted, and this I think kind of gets back into the security theater when when Trump was president of the U.S., I was under the impression that a lot of the responses to COVID were responses in the same way that politicos who opposed Trump responded to Trump in the sense of, you know, you're a Russian agent, uh, you're a madman, you're crazy, you know, you're just insane. And I thought that once Trump was no longer in office, we would start to see what I would refer to as common sense responses to COVID. I 
been completely mistaken in that. I am still seeing some of the same crazy responses to COVID that I saw under Trump that we're now seeing under Biden. And so my question for you as an observer is, is this part of the DNA makeup of we, we have to respond in a scared fashion. We have to tell people we're doing anything and everything to secure them, even though the threat compared to other threats isn't, you know, severe enough to warrant such a response. But we must give that response because we we have to give the impression that there's this big threat that we have to go in and come back. Yeah, you know, um, and, and I'm going to take one more call after after this. It's a great question. I think it's a question we've been banting around uh, in, in different ways over the last 90 minutes. You know, one of the things that I would say is this this explanation that's tempting for me, and, and, and it's the one that you alluded to, that it's kind of human nature to be afraid and therefore respond in this way. It's compelling, but it clearly doesn't explain everything because there is a, a division in how people are responding based on ideology and culture. So for whatever reason, political conservatives, people more associated with the right, have from the start almost taken the view that COVID is a threat, but there are other threats and we need to be weighing the cost and benefits and not embracing these maximalist 100% safety solutions. And maybe that made sense. Maybe it didn't at the start, but in a post-vaccine world, I don't see how that can do anything other than make sense. And yet for whatever reason, people more associated with American liberalism or Western liberalism or the left seem very enamored of this framework that says we should keep empowering centralized authority in the name of safetyism, this idea that we keep going and we keep going and we keep going and we never return to normal until not one more person is going to die from COVID. And so it's hard for me to accept the reductive view that what explains this all is something universal in our, our human nature, fear or a desire to be protected, because it's manifesting different ways based on different factors, including political ideology. And it's not just in the United States where this division is seen. It's throughout Western Europe. Here in Brazil, where I am, that division is the same. In parts of Eastern Europe, the same thing. And so there seems to be a lot more going on than just, well, as human beings, we have this natural fear instinct that's being stimulated because there isn't anything near the consensus, for example, that we had after 9-11, where 90% and then 80% of Americans were supporting the same policies in the name of combating terrorism. Almost from the start, there's been this kind of vehement division where where you sit on the ideological spectrum is very predictive of how you think the pandemic should be handled. So there's something else going on besides just universal instincts of how human beings are constituted. Is this the uh, fourth turning in action? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly, that's certainly a factor. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the things that um, we're, gonna have to deal with is the fact that because things are so polarized the question is going to become we're never going to even be able to agree on when the pandemic is over when we should basically declare it finished kind of manage it treat people who get covid but for all intents and purposes decide that it's time to return 
to normal, not even those foundational debates are going to be possible, given how vested certain people seem to be in seeing this pandemic as something more than it actually is. All right, the next and the last caller, and if you're still in the queue and I don't get to, I didn't get to you, um, I apologize, definitely come back, but we're nearing 90 minutes or just about past 90 minutes, so I try and make that the limit, um, is Granite Fines. Go ahead and unmute yourself. Yeah, Glenn. Hey, I had a question. You were wondering about if there's ever an end to it. I'll give you a conspiracy. There's people who never want it to end because you'll never get past without COVID. How do you get to have mail-in balloting? I question how we've gone from election day to election season to mail-in balloting. And I'm like, when does that end? Thoughts? Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, look, it, it is something that has upended every single aspect of how we live. You know, here in Brazil, for example, where I live in Rio de Janeiro, the New Year celebration is one of the most important things to the city's economy. It's 2 million or 3 million people who gather. People come from all over the world in huge numbers to celebrate New Year's in Rio de Janeiro. And the mayor of the city within weeks or days of the Omicron variant being put into the news, canceled New Year's, um, you know, without any attempt to determine whether it actually posed a serious threat. And every single component of our lives, how we work, how we live, how we travel, how we go to school, how we study, how we relate to the government, how we vote, has been shaped by our responses to COVID, which means that so much power has been invested in, has been vested in this centralized health bureaucracy that I don't want to be conspiratorial either, but you can't not realize that the way in which this is empowering these unelected centralized authorities and these institutions at least incentivize those people to want it to continue. Well, I just wonder, like for your mayor in Brazil, what's the, plus side for all this you'd think eventually enough people would be like we've had enough yeah i mean i think you know i think one of the problems that happened is when this media narrative was created that essentially every covid death was a person who president trump had personally murdered and you i mean you can go find people saying you know if i used to always argue i thought bush was clearly a more destructive president than trump by the liberal worldview and people would more or less concede that until COVID and they would say, well, now he has on his ledger that he killed 250,000 people. Once you start essentially attributing to politicians, the death of every person who dies under their governance from COVID, you've incentivized them to always err on the side of safety. So if in February, 30,000 people die in Rio de Janeiro of COVID. No one can say, well, it's the mayor's fault because he allowed New Year's Eve to continue. He instead canceled it and so can't be blamed for that. So I think there's a lot of political incentives to continue to sort of err on the side of this irrational form of extremism. And the only way that's going to change is if people make clear that what's actually starting to anger them is not COVID itself. They recognize that that's a 
coronavirus for which there is an effective and safe vaccine and increasingly effective treatments that's going to be with us for a long time. It's the irrational disruption to our lives that is what's angering people, and that will change the incentive scheme for how politicians manage it. Um, So that's about an hour and a half, even a little bit more than an hour and a half. Um, It was a great conversation. Um, Every single question was thought-provoking and interesting and informed, and I really appreciate that. It always makes my job easier and the show more interesting. So thank you to everybody who participated. Thank you to everybody who came. Um, I'll continue to do this at least once a week. I have my regular show that I co-host with Andre Demis on Tuesday, 4.30 Eastern. So you can always look for that as well. And I hope to see you the next time. Have a great evening, everybody. Bye.